Citizen Ruth is a 1996 comedy written and directed by Alexander Payne, who would go on to make Election and About Schmidt and Sideways, some great films. In this directorial debut, he focuses on this character called Ruth, played by Laura Dern, who is this drug addict who gets pregnant, and she gets caught up in the middle of the abortion culture war, the politics of pro-choice and pro-life. I do recommend for its wry take on society, and I want to use this as a jumping-off point for a discussion today about abortion. I'm going to focus on that one topic. I was going to answer all these questions on this quiz today, isidewith.com, social issues, but this first question on what your stance is on abortion, it just has me pausing because there's so much to say on it. I'm pro-choice, but I want to really delve into what that means, and I want to also give fair due to the other side, to the pro-life side as well as focus on a character like Ruth and explore what we're talking about when we talk about abortion. The first thing I want to make clear before I delve into the debate and the logic and the reasoning of this topic is just how personal this issue is. Personal and emotional. And I don't mean personal for me per se, I just mean I don't intend to step on anybody's toes because I know how dramatic and even traumatic an abortion can be procedurally and also, well, less procedurally and more emotionally. This is probably the biggest medical procedure somebody can go through and not because of the details of the procedure, but just because of this concept of life and this power that people have, specifically women have, to give birth, to create life. And to have an abortion is to, if not end life, to end the possibility of. And that's not a light matter. So I just want to make that clear that I can appreciate how personal it is and how emotional it can be but I'm going to try and remove my emotions from it, even as I do try and practice compassion. So that being said, let's get into it. I want to first clarify what an abortion is. I think a good working definition to start with is something like the intentional ending of a developing process. And I know that sounds a bit vague and opaque, and that's intentional because I want to keep this definition applicable to all the other ways in which we use the phrase to abort, like plans, but also because I want it to apply to both sides of this debate. What I mean is that the pro-life side and the pro-choice side would define it differently. I think the pro-life would define it as the intentional ending of a developing life and therefore akin to murder and the pro-choice side might define it like the intentional ending of a developing pregnancy which would then be the human right and woman's right of a female over her own body 
And I find it fascinating that both can be technically true, but they can't both exist in the same society regulated by law. I actually am not convinced that the pro-life argument can be technically true, but it depends on how we define life, doesn't it? Really, this whole debate centers around a few words, life being one and rights being another. Let's go into the pro-life argument and see what sense we can make of it. First of all, this term, pro-life, is so it's so nice, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite a misnomer, if you ask me, because who's not pro-life, you know? I mean, animal rights activists and vegans are pro-life of animals. Environmentalists are pro-sea life and forest life, you know? I think we're all in favor of the lives of our friends who might be suicidal or the lives of our family who we want the best for, obviously. So to say this idea of, you know, natalism essentially is pro-life is a little unclear to me and a bit dubious. Natalism is really this position of advocating for birth. And there is a philosophical idea called antinatalism, which I find quite interesting. It essentially places a negative value on birth from the get-go. Given all the suffering involved with being alive and the maybe net negative value of existing. It doesn't necessarily advocate for death and suicide, but it, it places a heavy burden on the responsibility of bringing life into the world. And I think that's a fascinating argument that we can come back to when we look at the pro-choice side of things. But to make sense out of the pro-life side, we have to really consider human development and the life cycle and life really as a continuing process, this kind of continuum. And I agree with that analysis. I don't really love the way that, for instance, on Wikipedia, if you look up stages of human development, you'll find very clear, distinct delineations between different moments of our lives. For instance, adulthood is broken up into young, middle, and old adulthood. And it does kind of make sense, you know, when we think of middle-aged people or old people, you know, we have a conception of that. So like 20 to 40, 40 to 60, and 60 and up, it kind of makes sense as a, as a way of understanding adulthood. And before adulthood, we have adolescence and pre-adolescence. And we all understand that teenagers are less developed than adults. And that's also why we grapple so much with the rights of adolescence, the rights to drink, the rights to, you know, be drafted for war, the right to vote, the right to consent to sex. And these are big deals that I hope to get into at some other time. Pre-adolescence, you know, this is when hormones are really kicking in and changes are happening, which I find pertinent to the idea of pregnancy as well. Childhood is clear. Babies are broken into toddlers and infants. Newborns are infants. Toddlers are the ones that actually 
learn to crawl and to walk and talk and grapple with the real world. And in my opinion, these are the guys that actually have a personality. Whereas infants are actually more akin to a fetus, really. You know, molecularly speaking, they're the same. And this is this continuum idea that I've, I'm talking about. What separates a newborn infant from a fetus eight months into pregnancy? Well, there are plenty of things. The birth process is a significant, very significant thing. The most significant thing, probably. We all have birthdays for this reason, honoring the day we became people officially. And for women, this is probably the biggest thing they'll ever experience. It would be for men as well if they could experience it, I think. So birth is a huge deal, but an infant and a fetus are the same technical being. It's just that one breathes air and uses a, an entire digestive system and can express itself vocally and can, you know, facilitate its limbic system. So an infant is much more of a person, if you ask me but probably less a person than a toddler in my estimation, which I know is controversial. But they call it a fourth trimester for a reason, right? As parents understand, an infant is totally reliant on its parents, especially mother, for food and sustenance and love and support and affection, which is vital to its life. A fetus is connected directly to its mother, its host, in the womb through the umbilical cord. It breathes through an amniotic sac. It's a totally different process of existence, and we don't really call that life, do we? But the pro-life argument makes sense of it because, again, it's molecularly identical. And going backwards still, from fetus you have embryo, this is like what uh, the thing is. Sorry to call it a thing, but I'm not sure what else to call it. I, I have a hard time saying person. Uh, an embryo comes from a zygote, and that's where really things begin. I'm not sure how long the zygote phase lasts. The embryo phase lasts about 10 weeks, I believe, and then the rest of the time it's a fetus. Usually, politically speaking, we divide this into trimesters of a pregnancy, three-month sections. And they're all a fetus at all three months, but in the first three months, it undergoes this massive change from looking like nothing at all, like a speck, like a cell, literally a one-celled organism, to gaining human features like a face and arms and legs. And I have to talk a little bit about some sex ed here because I just feel like closing the loop on this life cycle a little bit. A zygote is made when a sperm cell fertilizes an egg. And the sperm cell comes from a male with an X and Y chromosome. And the egg comes from a female with two X chromosomes. And this is a rather fantastic process known as the miracle of life. And 
it's fair enough that it's called that because it's so unreal and unfathomable that, you know, a man produces millions, if not billions of sperm cells in his life and, you know, thousands or millions, I'm not sure the number, are all within one uh, sample, if I may, of semen, which is most often ejaculated into the air, if we're all honest with ourselves. But occasionally, ideally, it ends up into a woman's body, into the womb, travels through the uterus, and finds an egg. And what are the chances of that? You know, one little cell finds this egg. And the egg, meanwhile, is released when mature from the ovaries once every 28 days. And it doesn't last very long before it starts to break down. And most of the time, it's just flushed out of the body through a period, or through a, yeah, through a period, through a process called menstruation. So the fact that a sperm cell and an egg ever meet is quite phenomenal. Not quite a miracle because it's easily explainable scientifically, but I can appreciate how in awe of this process people can be, especially religious people. And all of us can be traced back to this origin story. So it does stand to reason that we come from that and that if you abort that, you end you, right? So there is this attachment that we can feel toward a fetus or even a zygote because it is the seed of us. And I can feel that. I can dig it. It makes sense. It just, it doesn't make sense to call a single-celled organism a human being. And I think that the phrase human being is also really relevant here because we are a process. We are being. We aren't are. And it's a profound way to think about it, I guess. And I think we do need to think about it like that. And to continue with such profundities, I think we have to consider this concept of a soul. And, you know, I'm wary to go into this territory because it can get a bit uh, new agey pretty quickly. But I think that conceptualizing a soul is helpful especially when determining what life is and what we are trying to protect and savor and nourish and bring into the world. And I have to wonder if a fetus has a soul, and I have to say that it doesn't. And I even have to wonder if an infant has a soul. I don't mean to offend parents out there, I know that when you look into a child's eyes, an infant's eyes, you might see something like the beauty of a soul. But I would argue that you're projecting that because as a loving parent, you are imagining the life that this being will have. And you're imbuing it with the beauty you see for it, which is great. Not everyone would do that. I don't think our character from the aforementioned film, Ruth, of Citizen Ruth, would feel that way. I don't think she could care less. You're also experiencing 
pure empathy when you look into an infant's eyes. An infant does have a nervous system and it is responding to stimuli. And we all feel this kind of empathy when we look at dogs or any animals or even fictional characters that we've only known for a few minutes or even drawings. And I think we almost have this innate ability for empathy for this actual moment of child rearing because we're so attuned to what this being is perceiving and reacting to and this is what we need to be when raising a child and providing for it but that empathy is is more about you occupying its headspace and seeing out of its eyes into the world that is full of wonder and excitement and novelty and those sensations are real to be sure and i do think those are what build a soul over time but i don't think that they're evidence for a soul otherwise every single fictional character would have a soul and i have to wonder what a soul is made of then i think we learn it i think we grow it we develop it through our thoughts and feelings and our experiences of joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain. These are the things that really make us human, aren't they? I think that any of us, if questioned, what makes us us is our experiences and our attitudes and our perspectives and our opinions. And to say that a newborn infant has as much of a soul as we do is a bit offensive in my estimation. I also think that the more religious among us would concede this point because there's a concept in Christianity called limbo. Limbo of the infants, specifically, as a place for an undeveloped soul to go because it has not been baptized, has not been Christianized, and it doesn't comprehend sin itself and yet in the christian conceptualization it's born with original sin but again it's born it's passed through the birth canal with such sin i'm not going to go there today but suffice to say i don't agree with that idea i'll leave the domain of the divine momentarily but i want to cover one more topic on the topic of death or loss rather and this idea that actually god or nature more likely is the number one cause of lost pregnancies miscarriages happen they are the unintentional ending of uh, developing pregnancy and still life births happen as well which is the delivery of a dead fetus sudden infant death syndrome is another sad topic in which infants die suddenly and all of these things are they range from horrific all the way down to incidental 
given how the mother or prospective mother feels about it or even knows about it. Many miscarriages happen so early that they're but a blip in somebody's life. The process of life is this tenuous, delicate thing, isn't it? Our continuation of breathing, our heartbeat, and our neural activity. All this is just so susceptible to the cruel and unforgiving whims of nature. And we try to deny that in our daily lives because what good is it to ruminate on the inevitable? But we are born to die, aren't we? And some of us are born to die quite literally and quite quickly with bone cancer or some other fatal birth defect. And it's depressing to be sure. It sucks, it's sad. And I just wonder what the religious community has to say about all this to all the unintentional ending of life caused by mother nature that could have flourished if given a better chance. Loss is hard. That's the bottom line here. And in a way, I think religion and various institutions and various mindsets and ideologies are all set up to cope with that loss and make meaning out of it. But sometimes life just sucks, you know, and that's not going to change no matter how you frame it. But we can mitigate the pain involved, you know? And I want to sum up my sympathies for the pro-life movement with this basic idea of hardship and sorrow and the pain of losing this potentiality that is a terminated pregnancy. It doesn't matter your politics in the end when you get an abortion. It's again a personal issue and a hard one for most people. And I think a lot of women face this with fortitude and bravery and put it behind them knowing that they've done the best thing for them and for this unborn child. But it's not without its significant weight. The last thing they need is to be harangued by dogmatic, self-righteous finger-waggers that they have done something sinful. Someone could even be pro-choice politically, but pro-life or pro-natalist or anti-choice personally because they bear this duty to, how to put it, bear the thing that they conceived. And I can sympathize with that as well, given the weight and difficulty it must be to go through something as significant as deciding the fate of a possible life. 
the bottom line is that it's not a light matter and very few people take it as such. So let's acknowledge that. Perhaps with our character, Citizen Ruth, it would be a very light matter. But let's swap her comic story of bumbling through life as a train wreck and replace her with a more naive, innocent 15-year-old girl who has gotten pregnant accidentally. I'll let you imagine how. And the weight with which she has to grapple with a decision like abortion. I contend that very, very few people that get abortions do it gleefully. I think that most people recognize the power that they're holding to create and nurture life. And no one takes the decision to end that lightly. Even this 15-year-old girl who knows she's not ready to be a mother can understand that this could be her child. And that is something, isn't it? So I think we can all have some sympathy for the pro-life stance, given how hard it actually must be to intentionally end the development of your child. It's a huge deal. But let's not belabor that point either, because not all of us want to face that truth. I can't help but think of some stories I've heard of in my lifetime of, you know, teenage girls totally avoiding the fact that they're pregnant, giving birth at their high school prom, and just tossing their infant into a dumpster. Crazy, I know. And criminal, perhaps, but understandable in some way to the extent that this adolescent mind just cannot handle this totally world-flipping reality of becoming a mother and therefore pushes it out of mind entirely and just thinks, well, this is a thing, whatever, toss it and not even face it and then go back to the dance floor. You know, these kind of stories, it's easy to see the women as villains in some way, but I don't see it like that. I see it more as like a tragedy for sure, but more one of poor planning and poor psychological development. And I do wonder who the victim is in a sense. Well, I'll leave that aside for now. I guess my mind is starting to go toward infanticide. And the case has been made that infanticide is very similar to a late-stage abortion. And if you're going to allow one, why not allow the other? Journalists and thinkers have gotten in trouble for going that direction. I have a low profile, so I'm not exactly worried about getting in trouble. But I don't want to necessarily advocate for that. I just want to make, it, make the point that we are talking about the ending of a developing life in very early stages. And I think the political debate is what early stage is the right line to draw? This is what we get into, you know, congressional legislation stating strictly how many months or weeks into a pregnancy 
a female is allowed to get an abortion. And these are real issues to contend with. They're tricky. But if we're talking compromise, I would set the bar higher than it currently is out of compassion for females who cannot handle the trauma of unexpected, unplanned, life-changing pregnancies. So let's talk about this concept of compassion and rights. And I think there are separate arguments, but I have to think of them together at the moment. Fundamentally, I think the rights of, a, of an adolescent trump the rights of an unborn fetus. And I think that a female with a developing fetus in her womb has dominion over her womb. I don't think that this fetus is this protected class of people that deserve rights. I think that this 15-year-old girl deserves rights. I think that we gain rights as we age and as we mature, as we are able to accept more responsibility. And it's a pretty easy metric to apply here, specifically with the right to life. And that's what we're talking about here. My compassion goes toward the person with a living life that you can see and touch and witness and her connections to a lover, perhaps to her family, to her community. This person has agency in the world. She has choice. She has independence. And this is what I want to keep whole, her independence and her choices. So my compassion goes to her. But we can also extend compassion to the unborn through death. I don't want to say through death. We can also extend compassion to the unborn through abortion. And I actually will use infanticide as an example here with another story. A profound novel I read as an adolescent called Beloved by Toni Morrison. Pulitzer Prize winning. This is the story of a mother who kills her own child. And she does so out of love, if you can believe it. The story is set in post-slavery America, but the woman still has nightmares, fever dreams of her life in slavery. And she just cannot fathom allowing this child to be born into it. So she ends its life or abruptly stops it before it starts in order that the child is not raised in the oppressive, abusive, master-slave relationship. And can't we appreciate that? Can't we acknowledge that some lives are better not lived? This is back to the anti-natalist position that human suffering just seems absolutely unavoidable. It seems entwined into our being. And our aim as a society is to overcome that suffering, but it's more realistic in some cases than others. 
industrialized, developed countries do a better job of it through wealth. And as nations grow wealthier, their birth rates go down for a reason. Fewer children and better family planning later in life have immense benefits. There's a case against that as well of waiting too late, but let's leave that aside for now. I think that abortions must be a part of our social family planning strategies. And I hope that they're a rare part. I don't want everyone to be having abortions all the time. So of course we have to advocate for sex education and contraception and care, you know, unbridled young sex is something that happens obviously, and we're not going to end it. Teaching abstinence is ridiculous. So we have to know how to best inform young people of how to avoid certain tragedies or certain pitfalls in life. All of this stems from compassion. The compassion for sudden drama, the compassion for needless suffering of children. And I have to wonder where the compassion goes among the pro-life community once that child is born. Where are the social services being funded, the health care and the education for this new child? Where is the compassion for criminals who end up in prison out of desperation, who are so severely limited enter back into society? Where's the compassion for foreign people living in other nations with whom we wage war? We have to maintain compassion and that compassion must be nuanced. Life itself is not a pure bundle of joy. Death can be compassionate. The aged and elderly who suffer through terminal illness have a right to die. Animals that are suffering through some sort of injury are compassionately put down. We can do that to humans as well, and we can do it to unborn humans. So I think compassion has to be a fundamental keystone to a pro-choice argument. But it's not the only argument. I've talked about rights. And the right to kill is a funny one. Obviously, it sounds bad, and no one should really have the right to kill, especially uh, willing, freely and willingly. Because what, side, what kind of society is that creating? One in which we're all terrified for our lives of one another. So that's no good. But some people do have the right to kill. Law enforcement in some circumstances, perhaps too much, perhaps not. That's another debate. The military has a right to kill. Certain states and governors have the right to kill death row inmates. And we all have a right to kill insects. Not all life is sacred. 
And to pretend that it is, is nonsense. I just, I have a hard time accepting this train of thought that places such a high value on life. Life is cheap in the end. Life happens all the time on this planet anyway. And that's why you do see all these huge families in poorer places, 10 kids to a household. Not so long ago, maybe just even 100 years, plenty of children did die early in childbirth. And some took their mothers with them. So I think we have to steel ourselves to face harsh truths that life sucks <laughs> by and large and that death is merciful if not absolutely ordinary. That's just one perhaps cynical spin on the topic, but I think it's a relevant one. Who are we to bring so much suffering into the world through the careless births of unwilling babies? Who among us has chosen to be born in the first place? You know, uh, I'm thinking a bit circularly here. I've been making pro-choice arguments, but you know, liberals and progressive-minded people, people predisposed to creativity and adventure and novelty and experimentation, we are the people that often advocate for the pro-choice side of this debate. And yet we're also the people that advocate for the protection of the environment and the protection of the poor. We generally look out for the disenfranchised and unrepresented. And who is less represented than an unborn being? In a way, I could see a world in which the left is actually advocating for the rights of the unborn as a class that cannot represent itself. It does seem nowadays that the left is obsessed with standing up for the disenfranchised and otherwise marginalized. And I do wonder if it might switch one day where the left takes on this mantle of championing the unborn. But no, the left champions the women that bear the unborn. And I do think that that's the right move Meanwhile, the right, run by Christian conservatives apparently, is often aligned with libertarians. And I myself identify as a libertarian on social issues. I do think that the right to have an abortion is a libertarian issue, as is the right to do drugs, to own a gun, to move about freely. All these things are libertarian ideas of limited government and fewer laws that regulate my personhood. Keep your laws off my body is very similar sounding to keep your laws off my guns. And I see a lot of hypocrisy in people's trains of thought. On the right, I've pointed out the hypocrisy of this pro-life idea versus its own stance on pro-war, pro-death penalty, etc., anti-social services. I think liberals are hypocritical in their sense of, you know, keep your loss off my body, but take away everyone else's guns. Obviously, there are different things. 
I guess I should leave that for another time, the gun debate. But I do risk uh, Christians and anyone that really believes in life, if they are consistent with that view of keeping everything possible alive, I just disagree with it. I don't think that we need to keep everything possible alive. I'm not advocating war or the mistreatment of animals, but I think we want a flourishing life. We want a flourishing society full of good, healthy, loved, and wanted lives. Other life is less valuable in my estimation, and that is my controversial judgment. I think that some lives are more fruitful to society and even to their own souls than other lives. I think a corrupted life full of wrong turns and bad choices and misdeeds and evil thoughts is a lot less valuable than a life full of introspection and innovation and perseverance and dedication to the betterment of humankind. And I have a hard time entertaining arguments that Hitler's life was as valuable as Einstein's, for instance. Fundamentally speaking, my beliefs are that humankind must strive for a specific vision of a good society and a good life. And I think abortion must factor into it here and now. Do I can imagine a world in which abortions are not necessary and even outlawed and for that world to be a good one, but I don't think it's realistic. And I'll make one final argument for the choice of abortion. It's a very political one and maybe even a conspiratorial one. And that is the argument against authority. So again, this libertarian idea of keeping law out of my personal life, I don't want to be told what to do and how to do it. And I don't want to be controlled through the burden of family rearing. Because raising a child is a burden. It's a fortunate joyful one to those who welcome it, but it's also a way of controlling a populace. And I can't help but wonder if that's a motivation of the Catholic Church to keep its pews full and its people begging for mercy. I can't help but wonder if it's a bit of a motivation for the elitists that might run the world in some conspiratorial way who want to keep the masses pacified with pacifiers in their own children's mouths. It's hard to be politically active when you're changing every hour. So I can't help but think it is a necessary freedom that the majority class needs in order to strive for a better life prosperity individually and socially must include the freedom to pursue your own destiny and children thrown at you at an early stage in life can really derail that 
So I have a rather rebellious attitude regarding abortion that I want this choice because I don't want you to tell me I don't have a choice. It's kind of a punk way of looking at it, and I really still believe it. It's something I've thought since I was a teenager. That said, on the converse, it would be great if there were no abortions. It would be great. So I agree with conservatives on this point. Ideally, we would see a world without abortions. But to get there, we have to have much better education. We have to have better family planning and resources. We have to have a more driven willpower toward careful family planning practices. So I do want to fight alongside conservatives for that kind of world. But the fact is we're not there. We're not there in the USA. We're not there around the world globally. And it is the poor and impoverished and less fortunate that bear the brunt of these decisions. And I just cannot help but think that they need access to abortion. Ironically, a lot of them are the most religious and eschew such help offered. Be that as it may, I think it's important to win over the hearts and minds of young people uh, free, of ad- free of ideology to not brainwash people into this religious way of thinking that contraception is wrong, that human sin, that original sin is inborn, that contracept that you have to deal with all the consequences in your life from sex and otherwise. It's just important that we we aim for the right kind of world that we want to see and I think that we are generally partnered with the other side of the aisle in these cases but in order of how to get there we have to make our stances clear i think i've made my stance clear why i'm pro-choice and yet i am still open to hearing arguments against abortion because i do see it as a heavy thing to inflict on oneself let alone onto an unborn human. All right, guys, I guess I've said enough on this topic. Hope you were able to get through it. Next time, I'll go a little lighter. Until then, ciao.